I want to begin with just some personal words. This is not the sermon yet. So about eight years ago, uh, my wife and I got married in California, and we, um, in August, moved to Charlottesville. Drove all of I-40. It was miserable and hot. Um, And we arrived here. And I remember the first Sunday, first Sunday I was here, uh, Joe Magri was preaching and got to meet him. And I remember then those, uh, we came here for me to do a PhD at UVA. And I remember thinking, hey, it'd be really awesome to be a pastor at Trinity. But I thought, there's like four pastors here. That's never going to happen. And then uh, fast forward um, to 2020. Uh, my wife is actually on staff. She got hired before I did, which makes sense. Um, <laughs> she, she's better than me in all things. Um, and uh, the pandemic had just hit, and I was applying for, for jobs. I was offered two jobs. Uh, one was a solo pastor job, which honestly fit my sense of who I am. I love doing a lot of different things, I'm more of a generalist than a specialist. Um, and, I, and one of the things that I love doing is preaching. And so this, this solo pastor job fit me so well. And yet, it was a pandemic. It had just been shut down. We didn't, weren't able to go visit that church. And Trinity also offered me a job. And I thought, I love this church so much. It felt like God was calling Jessica and I to be here. The job description, I, I don't think it had anything in there about the preaching. I think maybe Walter told me I might get to preach two times a year, which was very sad to me. Um, but we ended, up, we ended up taking the Trinity job because we, we love you. We love you, and we've been here and wanted to continue to do that. And part of the reason we, we wanted to stay is because we knew that I was a young pastor and needed some mentoring and discipleship. And there were three pastors in their 50s and 60s that I thought, they can mentor me. Um, and then as you know the, the story, within a year, they had all uh, left for various reasons, good reasons. Um, but the Lord is so generous. Lord is so generous to send Mike Sherritt here. Mike was such a loved mentor to me. Um, I actually got to hear Mike preach eight years ago um, at a little little church called All Nations. And I remember going up to him after his sermons, and I asked him, would you mentor me? And he was going to Philadelphia, and so he kind of awkwardly looked at me and was like, no, can't do that. And it's been really fun to remind him that the Lord dragged him back just for me. Um, so I'm so thankful for, for Mike and so thankful for, for you all. Um, I think as, as you, Trinity is on the cusp of a new season. It's on the, and, and I'm really excited about that season. I'm really excited. And yet this, this sense of call feels like the Lord is calling Jessica and I away. Um, I, I, again, I love, it feels like it's time for me. I, I've kind of grown up, and, I, and most of that is because of you uh, maturing. And this has been a hard, it's been a hard season. When I, when, I, when I thought that I needed some sanctification, I didn't know that it was going to be, st- I didn't think the fire would be this hot. <laughs> but it, it got hot. Um, but I'm so thankful for it on the other side, and so thankful for you. So it is very bittersweet for us to leave, but I'm 
so excited to go to, to Castro Valley, a place I'd never heard of before five months ago. Um, but it's just south of Oakland in, Cal in California, um, which, and, and the Bay Area is one of the least churched areas in the U.S. And so I'm so excited to, to, to move there and to, and to see what God might do. I'm excited to see what God might do through us. Um, so let's get to our text now. Uh, this, oh yeah, details. We'll be leaving, leaving in late July. Jessica always tells me that I forget details, and that's very true. We'll be leaving in late July, so we're going to be hanging out with you for a little bit of the summer. Um, so let's jump in now. So this May and June, we are in a sermon series on Ephesians. And last week, we looked at how renewal in Christ means we learn a different language. And the week before, we preached on anger. I preached on anger, so you wouldn't, I was preparing you to read my letter and not be angry at me as I, as I leave you. Um, and now we've arrived at chapter 5 about marriage. Now you can hear and see the gospel of romance everywhere. You can watch a range of rom-coms on Netflix from high to low budget. You can drag it out over 30 one-hour episodes of a Korean drama. I'll tell you, I'll, I'll give you a hint. They always end the same. The guy and the girl end up together. That's how they end. Uh, you can see and hear this gospel of romance in any random assortment of Disney movies prior to 2000, right? Jasmine and Aladdin. Um, it's either the main or a strong subplot, the prince and princess falling in love. Jerry Maguire turns to Renee Zellweger to say, you complete me. The gospel of romance is deep within the Western psyche and has been for about two centuries. Jane Austen writing around 1800. She's in a category, I'm not comparing her to Disney, okay? But every one of her books ends in a wedding, the gospel of romance. Ernest Becker, a cultural anthropologist and Pulitzer Prize winner, he penned a term for this intense faith in romance that's kind of been born the last 200 years. He called it apocalyptic romance, apocalyptic romance. Romance provides transcendence. The stars align, right, as the lovers first lance each other. You can hear it in Jason Isbell's If We Were Vampires, the desire for this immortal love. Sometimes it has a religious garb, such as the Postal Service's 2003 song, Such Great Heights. Listen to this. I'm thinking it's a sign that the freckles in her eyes are mere images. And when we kiss, they're perfectly aligned. And I have to speculate that God himself did make us into corresponding shapes like puzzle pieces from the clay. Isn't that beautiful? The gospel of romance. There's someone that fits me so perfectly that when I kiss them, the freckles of our eyes are aligned. That's apocalyptic romance. And, Be and Ernest Becker viewed this romance as a replacement for religion. As Western society moved away from Christianity, moved away from religion, from meaning, it replaced it with romance. That's what provides life with meaning and happiness. And you can see that all throughout our culture. So what do we do with this longing for love and lover, this gospel of romance? Well, let's jump into our text and see. Ephesians 5, verses 21 through 33. You can look on your bulletin. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. 
Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father in heaven, we thank you that you love us so completely. We thank you that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And we pray that you would sanctify us even now washing of the word we need to be cleansed oh lord so would you please be with us in christ's name amen before we really jump in i want to give a few words to you single people because we're talking about marriage but this scripture is for you for three reasons first of all someday you might marry you never know number two you have married friends who need your encouragement you see, in Christ's church, we are responsible for each other, including responsible for each other's marriages. My marriage would be far less rich if it were not for my single friends speaking into my life. And number three, this passage is about human marriage, first and foremost, but it's not only about it. What this passage is going to lay out is this deep, profound meaning that marriage is actually about something else. It's actually about the love that God has for you and what he's done for you. And so this is for you. If you want to understand what Christianity is like, this is an extraordinary passage to see what the Lord is offering us. So pay attention. So I've got three points for you. The first, revering submission. Revering submission. First point. Look at verse 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, in the ESV, ESV splits this apart from verse 22, which is fine. Those, those headings are not inspired. And it's actually a transition verse because it's introducing a new topic that Paul is going to give us uh, going forward. He's going to start talking about three different relationships in which submission is necessary. Before he goes there, though, he wants to lay down a general principle that, that to be a Christian— means that you have an attitude of submission. That being a Christian means that you revere submission. Now, I know that some of us have a gut reaction to that word, submission. Isn't it, uh, isn't it all of your favorite word? Submit. Whew. At its basic, submission is a voluntary, your will be done, not mine. 
At its most basic, submission is your will be done, not mine. Let's do what you want. Submission is, is the attitude of a servant. And it's this surrender of will that's really difficult for us, right, modern Americans? We do not revere submission. We, the term repels us, and we resist and resent submission. I've spent the last eight years on a, a doctorate on American evangelicalism, and one of my worries for the, for the American church is that there are areas where we are far more American than we are a Christian. Far more American than we are a Christian. We speak in a vernacular of liberty and rights, which are good things. Don't get me wrong. But do we allow the Bible to shape our view of liberty and rights? Like, does Jesus shape our language and our conception and our imagination more than Thomas Jefferson? Scripture calls us at times to actually give up our rights, especially for the love of neighbor, to submit to each other, to surrender our rights, submission. And there's an implied and an explicit rationale for this submissive attitude. The, the implied rationale that Paul is, is giving us actually goes all the way back to chapter 4, the very beginning. In chapter 4, we, uh, Kelly preached on this at the beginning of May. It's all about unity in the church. Unity in the church. Paul wants the church to be unified. Why? Because God himself is unified. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if we're going to image, image that unity, then we have to submit to each other. Submission is actually a technology, a, a technique, a way that we actually bear unity. And our marriages need it. Our churches need it. We need unity. If we're going to have unity, we have to submit. And the explicit rationale, that's the implicit. The explicit, look at the end of that verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In other words, our reverence for Christ is is to spill out into our relationships. Because we revere Christ, we actually begin to revere others and submit to them. Now, God knows that we struggle with submission. This is not just a, a 21st century American problem. It's, it's a human problem. No one likes to submit. And that's why the Lord's Prayer actually has in it a plea for submission. Right? Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In the Lord's Prayer, we're praying for a submissive attitude. So, to combat our cultured repellence for submission, we need an imagination. What, what does submission look like? One of the most beautiful literary portraits, I think, of submission is that of Samwise Gamgee to Frodo. Like, like in, the, in the story, in the book, in Tolkien's book, there is this power differential. Samwise is a servant. He's a gardener for Frodo who's wealthy. And yet when Frodo goes on his journey, Samwise says, I am committing myself to you. I am submitting to you in all these things. It's this beautiful submission of Sam to Frodo. And he does it out of love and unity of purpose. Whatever Frodo's purpose is, Sam has adopted it even more. Now there's an implicit promise and submission. You see, submission feels like death. And that's because it is. It is a death to your will, 
to what you believe is right, to what you think is wise. It feels like you're losing your life. But if it's losing your life, don't you see the promise? What did Jesus say? In Matthew 16, 24, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You hear that promise? That when we lay down our life, when we lay down our will, that there is life on the other side of that surrender. The life on the other side of submission. Brothers and sisters, I've served in a number of churches, and each has a particular culture, a spirit. And, and you need to know, Trinity, that you are a strong-willed bunch. You're a, the spirit of Jefferson runs strongly in the waters here. No Brita filter is going to get that out. And that's not bad. It's not bad, but it means that submission is hard for us. That was revealed when we went through the pandemic. Trinity, Jesus is calling you to have an attitude of submission. First and foremost to himself, no one can get away from submission. If you love Jesus, you're going to have to submit to him. And even if you don't love Jesus, you're going to submit to someone, right? Bob Dylan, you're going to serve somebody. But Trinity, Jesus is calling you to submit to him and to submit to each other. That is the evidence of our, the gospels at work, the same spirit of Jesus that submitted to his father is at work in us. So when's the last time you submitted to your boss, to your friends, to your spouse, your parents, your kids? Friends, we need to revere, revere submission. That leads us to our second point, the sacrifice of love. In verse 22, Paul moves from the general command of submission to this to the specific. Verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now note, it is your own husband. This is not a general command for all women to submit to all men, or even all wives to all husbands, but each wife to her husband. And the initial rationale is like verse 21. Submit to your husband as to the Lord. As you submit to the Lord Jesus, submit yourselves to your own Husbands. Now, I understand how countercultural this is in our day. But you need to know this, is, this was countercultural for Paul's day, too. Not for his instructions to wives, but for the next part, for the husbands. You see, the Greeks and the Romans, they practiced what I would call promiscuous patriarchy. There was a double standard. Women were to be faithful, but it was expected that men would be unfaithful. Demosthenes, an Athenian, listen to this quote. Listen to his view of marriage and his wife. We keep prostitutes for pleasure. We keep mistresses for the day-to-day needs of the body. And we keep wives for the beginning of children and for the faithful guardianship of our homes. Disgusting, right? But but what what does Paul say here? Now, a Greek husband would would agree with verse 23. Look at verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife. A great husband would say, yes, I agree. But then look at verse 25. Look how Paul commands and instructs husbands. It says, he says, husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, whoa, 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 whoa. 
Isn't she the one that should sacrifice for me? Like, I'm, I'm the head, right? She should sacrifice for me. Biblical scholar uh, Michelle Lee Barnwell notes that Paul is actually turning this metaphor of a head on its head. Because the head is more necessary, right? With the body expendable. Why would the head sacrifice for the body? If you lose the head, you lose everything. And yet Paul is calling the head to sacrifice for the sake of the body. He's calling men, husbands, to sacrifice for the wives. That's not, that's not what the Greeks would have expected. Paul is calling these husbands to fidelity, to love, to sacrifice. Now, wives, wives, it's submission to a husband that is sacrificially committed to you. Do you see that? I'm going to submit myself to you, but you are going to sacrifice for me. So let's give a hypothetical with no basis in reality. Let's say that you budgeted one ice cream per month in your family, and your wife likes mint chocolate chip, which is a garbage, garbage ice cream. <laughs> ice cream should not taste like toothpaste. It just, it just shouldn't. But let's say, let's say we, we, we have to buy one ice cream per, per month, right? And so, so the wife, the husband might say, Hey, look at verse 22, right? No mint ice cream. You got to submit. Well, what can she say? She can say, well, yeah, but look at verse 25. You have to give up your life for me. <laughs> I think this whole ice cream thing might be a little low, right? I joke, but it's important that Paul gives these principles, but he doesn't actually flesh or articulate out the practicality of them. There's remarkable flexibility in this concept of headship and submission. Like how they get worked out is going to look differently from culture to culture, from marriage to marriage. And it's not a coincidence that right before this passage on, mar on marriage, Paul says, I want you to cultivate wisdom. Be wise. So to summarize in a Christian marriage, wives submit and husbands sacrifice for their wives' good. And when you put it like that, the calls are distinct, but they're not all that different. Submission is a species of sacrifice, isn't it? Of giving up yourself. It is surrendering your will. Matthew Henry, I love this quote. He said, so much is required of each husband and wife that neither should have reason to complain of these divine injunctions. The love which God requires from the husband on behalf of his wife will make amends for the subjection which he demands from her to her husband. And the prescribed subjection of the wife will be an abundant return for the love of the husband which God has made her due. In other words, what I'm saying here is submission and sacrifice, husband and wife, they're both ways of being like Jesus. Like marriage, what Christian marriage is, is it's to take us and to make us look more and more like Jesus. That's the point. That's the point. And, and, and both, both of these things go terribly wrong when there is no love. He says, husbands, love your wives. We live in a moment, church, fixated on power. And it slipped into the church. Church historian Carl Truman notes that discussions on gender 
especially in conservative Christian circles, sound like those in the academy, like Derrida and Foucault, obsessed with power and who has power. But the subtext of the new creation in Christ is one of love, love, of the self-giving, self-sacrificing nature of love. And without love, submission and sacrifice turn into a tit-for-tat legalism that ends in bitterness. Remember 1 Corinthians 13. If I submit or sacrifice without love, it's pointless, it's futile. I'm a noisy gong. Love alone holds the power to transform submission and sacrifice into a delight. I think it looks like this, the, the sacrifice of love. You know the, the short story, The Gift of the Magi by O. Henry? A poor married couple has no money for Christmas gifts, and the wife has beautiful long hair, and so she sells it in order to buy a present, a chain, a watch chain for her husband. And the husband comes home and sees her hair cut and is stunned. He gives her the ornamental combs that she's been eyeing. He bought it for her hair. But he sold his watch to do so. He's stunned. Both of them have given what they prized most. Her hair, his watch. Both of them give that away so that they could bless and give to their sacrifice for their beloved. And O'Henry ends with this great line. He says, these two foolish children who most unwisely sacrifice for each other the greatest treasures. But then he says, but of all who give gifts, these two were the wisest. That's the sacrifice of love. Why? And it ends, the story ends with the husband smiling. Because what's happened is not just a transaction, but a pledge of love. And love has a vector, friends. Our marital love is going some way. We see the purpose of marriage in verse 26. It says that he might sanctify her. That is, that is, that is what marriage is about. It's about sanctification. If you don't want to change, then don't get married. If you don't want to change, if you like who you are, don't get married. Stanley Harbaugh says, uh, don't worry about marrying the wrong person. You're always going to marry the wrong person. You're always going to marry the wrong person. In Christian marriage, it's about sanctification. It's about loving the other towards Jesus. And we get glimpses of, of, of what this person could become like, of the beautiful creature inside of them that is in Jesus. And that's what marriage is. It's sharpening. It's pushing them ever so gently, sometimes with confrontation, sometimes conflict. In marriage, confrontation is not evil. It's necessary because we are sanctifying each other. That is what the sacrifice of love is. That leads us to our third point, a cherishing husband. I want you to see how beautiful and profound the love that Jesus has for his bride. He is a cherishing husband. Now look at all that he does for us. Look at verse 26. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. He cleanses us. So that, verse 27, he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, wouldn't it be visually atrocious 
to have the bride waiting up at the front of the aisle with a white wedding dress, and yet there's just dirt and mud all over it. What this says is that Jesus, he takes that wedding dress, he cleanses it. He gives us cleanness. That's status language. Paul here is talking about a definitive sanctification. That, you, that, that in Jesus, when we come to him, that he actually makes us clean. That we stand before him holy and blameless. And then in verse 28, Paul introduces another metaphor. Another rationale for husbands to love their wives. Verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. The way you love yourself, your own body, that's how you love your wife. She's become like your body. That's, how inner, that's what marriage is. He goes on in verse 29. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. I want to pause there for here. Here, nourishes and cherishes. Let's look at those two words. The Greek word for nourish is, is also the word for feed and nurture. So husbands are to feed and nurture their, their wife. And then cherish. It means to keep warm. To proverbially keep close to your chest. To cherish, to care, to treasure. Paul uses this word in 1 Thessalonians 2, 7. He says, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother cherishing her own children. It's perhaps fitting that Paul draws on a word associated with a nursing mother. Both nourish and cherish in our culture, those are like feminine words, right? That's what moms do. And yet Paul is saying, hey, husbands, this is what you do for your wives. You are to treat them gently, kindly, to cherish and treasure, just as you do your own flesh. Think of the care a professional athlete gives to his body. Like when something goes wrong in his body, like there's like a multitude of staff that goes to tend it, to heal it, to care for it. That, that's what Paul is saying. Husbands, when there's something going on in your wife, you care for her like that. You care for her. Now, wh one way to do that is to listen. Husbands, you need to listen. I need to listen. And that takes a lot of energy to listen. Because you are called, you are called to nourish and cherish your wife so that she actually experiences the nourishment and cherishing of her Lord Jesus through you. That's how Jesus cares for you, his church. He nourishes and cherishes us. When something's going wrong in you, like a mother knows when her nursing child is hungry or sleepy, that's how well Jesus knows you. He cherishes you. Now let's move to our last point here. The gospel of marriage. The gospel of marriage. Now, it may seem strange to attach the gospel to marriage. Marriage does not seem like good news. <laughs> Indeed, the news is replete with bad news of marriage. The, the divorce rate is declining, mostly because the marriage rate is declining. Because people like millennials, Gen Zs, are saying, why bother? Why bother marrying? So cohabitation is up. There's a, there's a recent movie, 2019, The Marriage Story, 
which I do not have the stomach to watch, but it should be better titled The Divorce Story, but a marriage coming apart. And that's the point. Like a marriage story in our culture is a divorce story. So, so what about the good news of marriage? Well, we skated around it all sermon, but did you notice that our passage is one big comparison? One big metaphor which accounts for Paul's shifting subjects. He's talking about Christ the church, and he talks about husbands and wives. Christ the church, husbands and wives. That's intentional. And finally, Paul lays down his cards in verse 31. In verse 31. And there he quotes Genesis 2.24. It says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now that's where God lays out the institution of marriage. And the context there, if you remember, if you know Genesis, is that God has searched for a helpmeet for Adam. And he couldn't find any. And so he makes Adam go to sleep, takes the rib, and forms a woman out of, her, out of his rib. And Adam sees Eve, and he says, he bursts into poetry. It's the first time a man has seen a woman. And poetry, listen, here at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. In other words, here is one who is of me. She came from me and thus completes me. And then, Genesis 2.24, it institutes marriage. It says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. In other words, marriage, in a way, is a return to the one flesh, man and woman originally experienced. Now this one flesh is most obviously a reference to sex. Sex sealed the marriage. It was the covenantal sign. We didn't talk about it yet, but marriage is essentially a covenant. It's a pledge of future love to be faithful to one another. Not a present love, a future love. It's a covenant, an agreement. And sex is the sign of that covenantal love. It's a physical sign of that marital unity, that covenant. But then Paul offers a really fascinating interpretation. Look at verse 32. He says, This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now, some of us might say, yeah, marriage is a mystery. How do I do this? Paul's not using mystery in that way. Paul is saying that there's something revealed in Christ and the church that actually takes us into the meaning of marriage. The unity of the two becoming one. But that's actually a sign, a symbol of Christ and the church. In other words, the self-giving of sex and the unity of male and female is a sign, a symbol. And what it signifies is the covenantal love of Jesus Christ for the church. So here's the analogy. In marital sex, you give yourself, your body to your spouse... And it produces one of the most profound, beautiful, and breathtaking unions in all reality. And on the cross, Jesus gives his body for the church to make her his own. And in the union that we have with Jesus, we have one of the most profound, beautiful, and breathtaking unions in all reality. In other words, the union that Jesus has with the church, it was first. Marriage is just a pale shadow of what is true about the union that we are invited to with the Lord. And I know that that may, may make some of us nervous. I said sex a whole lot. 
But marriage and even sexuality is how God chooses to speak of his relationship with his people time and again throughout the Bible. Idolatry is likened to adultery for the Lord. Read Jeremiah. Indeed, one of the most haunting and moving images in Scripture is that of Hosea and his wife. Hosea, a prophet, takes a wife that ends up running away with another man. And then the Lord tells Hosea to go redeem his wife, to take her back, to love her once again with grace and mercy. It was a universal metaphor. The Lord was saying, this is who I am. I am the God that goes after the unfaithful wife. I'm the God who makes her graciously, invites her into the most intimate communion, even though she has spurned it. What Paul is saying about Ephesians 5, he says, this is who Jesus is the man in verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. This is the gospel that Jesus came for his bride. He came for his bride, even though she was unworthy. She was not holy. She was not blameless. And yet he came in grace to pursue us as harlots. And then he holds us fast. Don't you love that word? It says, the husband shall hold fast to his wife. That is how Jesus holds his church. He holds fast. In fact, he does that on the very price of his life. At the very beginning, verse 25, it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This is the, this is the gospel of marriage. That, that Christ gave his life for his bride. In 2011, one of the most deadly tornadoes struck Joplin, Missouri. And Bethany and Don Lansaw had been married for six years. They had plans for a family. He owned a machine shop and she worked at the local college. And then the, the tornado hit. Bethany remembered, quote, the house was ripping apart. And Don flew into action. They went to the bathtub. And he laid on top of her to shield her. Indeed, his body did shield her from the debris that would puncture him and take her life, take his life. As the reporter was talking to Bethany, he asked, he covered you? And she said, he just had so much love in his heart. He got on top of me to take the brunt of most of it. He is my hero. Friends, that is the sacrifice that Jesus gives for us, his bride. He covers us. That's that's the cherishing husband. The cherishing husband is the one who lays down his life for the bride. That is the gospel that marriage speaks to. That marriage speaks to. Remember Ernest Becker's apocalyptic romance. He was not a Christian, but he explained how replacing romance for religion was doomed to fail. He said, quote, How can a human being be a god like everything to another? No human relationship can bear the burden of godhood. What is it that we want when we elevate the love partner to the position of God? We want redemption, nothing less. We want to be rid of our faults, of our feeling of nothingness. We want to be justified to know that our creation has not been in vain. And so we turn to the love partner for perfect validation. We expect them to make us good through love. And needless to say, human partners can't do this. Becker rightly recognized that human romance cannot deliver the goods. 
And yet, you know what? There is a romance that does. There is a romance that does. What Becker misses is that apocalyptic romance has its origins in truth. You see, we were made for romance. We were made for union. We were made for a marriage that will, for, that will fulfill us. And it's a marriage with Jesus Christ. If you do not know him, if you do not know him, you do not know the one for whom your soul was made. That is what we are made for. The longing of our culture is for a true romance. Here in Jesus Christ is the apocalyptic romance. This is the, this is the romance that will end all things. In fact, the Bible accurately and fittingly presents an apocalyptic romance. Listen to Revelation chapter 19. It says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the land has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Friends, that is where we're going. If you know Jesus, if you know Jesus, if you're part of his church, then that is the marriage that you are headed for. And it will be rapturous. Paul says, dressed, presented to him in splendor. Friends, this is the splendorous church. We will be that because of Jesus and his beautiful self-giving love. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, we pray that you would make us a fitting wife for you. We pray that you would bless the marriages in our midst. You would make them holy. You would preserve them and save them, oh, Lord. And we pray that our marriages would be a proclamation of the gospel. Lord, give us that, we pray in Christ's holy name. Amen.